99, Trustworthy with Heather Wells. This is Matthew, and in this episode of Still Unbelievable, I am joined by David from Skeptics and Seekers to interview Heather Wells, author of the book Trustworthy, A Journey from American Christianity to Freedom. Heather writes powerfully about her life experience, and that comes across as David and I describe our reactions to her book. Heather has also been interviewed by David, the Graceful Atheist. See the show notes for a link to that episode and for other links to resources helpful to those journeying away from Christianity. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Still Unbelievable. And this comes at the height of a very, very exciting couple of weeks here in the UK because I've got a guest, David. Hello, David. Welcome on. You are the new Andrew, at least for today. Anyway, how are you, sir? I feel like I've been demoted. <laughs> well, he doesn't well, you have. Thing, <laughs> well, it clearly is a demotion because Andrew doesn't consider me important enough, and he's outside somewhere on with water and sunshine or something like that. So, if I'm not good enough for Andrew for him to give that up for me, clearly you have been demoted. Mm. Mm. And. We have a guest as well, but before I get to our guest, I've got some really exciting news to share. This is bigger than the Eurovision Song Contest that's going to happen tonight. So that's a clue on to the day we're recording. It is bigger than the coronation that we had a week ago. Bigger than both of those put together. I I have been holding on to this since October when it was filmed. I was in a music video. Oh. Hmm. Was Beyonce involved? Uh, nobody you've heard of was involved. Okay. You yeah, sound he underwhelmed. Have, he could have just said yes, and uh, people would have believed it. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah. If you're feeling right. brave and you can spot somebody wearing a hat in the dingy background of a dark room in, for five seconds in a video, go onto YouTube and search for the Green Brick Pub. But until then... Listen to Still Unbelievable. Welcome to our guest. Hello, Heather. How are you? Welcome on to Still Unbelievable. Hello. I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. Excellent. Now, we got in touch over Facebook because of one of the numerous Facebook groups connected to deconstruction. You mentioned about a book. So I've, I've already interviewed two authors this year. So you are my hat trick. Congratulations. That means you're the most important one. You're the one that everybody cheers about. Why did you write a book? I guess I would say for a few reasons. Um, one was for myself to kind of process through what I had experienced. Because for me, journaling has always been the way that I, it's like an outlet for me. If I don't have, you know, a therapist, <laughs> I journal. Um, and as I wrote this, my now new husband, who's wonderful and supportive, he said, you know, there are probably a lot of people out there who are in a similar situation and maybe they would benefit from hearing your story and knowing that there's a way out. He said, maybe you should publish it. So I did, based on his encouragement. And congratulations. So is this self-published or do you have a publisher behind you helping? It is self-published. I have submitted it for a few uh, book awards and with some of those awards, they're submitted to actual publishers it has received one award which is exciting um well done. but for now it's uh it's self-published yes 
Excellent. And I enjoyed your book. I left a good review of your book. At least I believe I did. Actually, quick side note on that. I did try to leave a review of your book on Amazon, but because I don't use my Amazon account very much and I've not purchased from Amazon for more than two years, they refused me my ability to leave a review because I haven't spent enough money with them. So I'm not allowed to leave a review. And because my wife is a Christian, I can't jump onto her account to do it because I wouldn't leave the same kind of review <laughs> that she would <laughs> leave. So listeners, if you want to leave a review for Heather's book on my behalf, please do so. Five stars is what I would give it. So leave your review. Please listen to this episode. Go jump onto Amazon and leave a review because Amazon won't let me do it. Can you believe it? Unbelievable. I just want to add uh, for self-publishing, self-publishing is not a bad thing anymore. It's not like the vanity press of old. Uh, One of the hottest Apple TV shows right now is Silo. And Silo was based on a book series, a trilogy. I think the original name was Wool, which was self-published. And that book was so successful. It won numerous awards. Some of the finest books and media out there are self-published these days, such as, for instance, Red Letters. A clo- oh, never mind. Never mind. <laughs> you using my platform to promote your content again, David. No, no. I was just, I was just talking about the success of self-publishing, and I just, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you got scratch, scratch that. <laughs> Right, well, now that you're talking, what was your thoughts on reading Heather's book? I enjoyed it. I will admit that I read it fast. And so I'd like to think that I didn't miss any of the nuance. But it was it was very powerful. It was an interesting journey. And I think one of my initial thoughts was, I hope there's a happy ending. Because this is a journey into misery. <laughs> this is this is a very hard read because you're thinking, okay, well, it'll get better now. Nope. And at some point you realize, wait a minute, this is a real person talking about real things that happen in their life. And so I think my overall thought about the overall read is it's a relief to have a happy ending, but it's also a warning of all of the steps along the way where things went wrong for you, where one can look at and say, what can we do differently as a society to, to keep this story from happening again to other people? And I, I have gotten similar feedback from a couple of friends who have read the book. And that would be that uh, I should write a sequel because they, they wanted a little bit more of that happy ending and life since then really has gotten so much better um and as the title implies the the ending is supposed to stress that i found myself trustworthy whereas prior to that i was taught to only trust god and men who were in charge in the church and i suppose maybe that that could have been a little stronger (laughs) towards the end and maybe i will write a sequel we'll see well let's stop there and properly plug your book the title of your book and where can people find it there will obviously be links in the show notes. Sure. Um, the title of the book is Trustworthy, 
The subtitle is A Journey from American Christianity to Freedom by Heather Wells. And I will also note that there is a popular Bible study out by the same title of Trustworthy. And I did not write that for sure. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, several digital outlets as a paper book, paperback or an ebook. Like David, I did enjoy your book. I had um, a range of emotions on the book, but I think the dominant emotion was was anger. Anger at the misogyny that is rife within too many churches. Mm-hmm. And your story did make me angry at multiple points about what was happening and the the blatant, what's the word I'm looking for? The blatant and willful denial of humanity that certain men take in the churches that you describe and then I think back to some of the Facebook groups that I'm part of which are all around deconstruction from Christianity and I realize that this is not a one-off cult this is not a single bad actor this is a common story all across America a lot of women are telling a very similar story and not just in America either. So I think your book is good because the story needs to be told, it needs to be told often, and it needs to be repeated many times so that other people who either don't have the ability to tell their story can access a story so they know that they're not alone. Mm -hmm. That's very true. And as I was writing the book and kind of trying to assess what had happened to me and why, I think one of the things that really became clear to me was that these ideas were impressed upon me from birth. And it can be difficult to get out of whether you were indoctrinated at birth or whether, you know, someone found you at a difficult time in your life and introduced you to religion and told you that was the solution. It doesn't really matter how you enter it. It's still a very difficult mentality to work your way out of. But I would say that I find it to be an injustice to indoctrinate children in this way. Mm -hmm. They are not choosing to enter based on their own decision or uh, as a solution to a difficult time. They're not choosing. It's just impressed on them as truth. And I don't think as a society we have a way to mitigate that. But I would love to see one. Yeah. Could, could you speak more about the indoctrination? That's uh, something that I've talked about a bit with Andrew and Matt as well after reading the book. When your book begins, uh, mm-hmm. it's you are already in the framework of a fundamentalist religion uh, right. from from a small child. You're already in that framework. And so by the time you get to a place in life where you can start making decisions, it's almost as if those decisions have already been made because you're, you're well within in that framework. How far back in, in your line does that indoctrination really go? And I, I know that it's something that you're, you wanted to break the cycle for your children, but you were still in that. So maybe your grandkids, how are they raised differently from say, how you and your mother and grandmother were raised? Yeah. Um, well, I guess I'll start with my parents. I would say my father is the the religious person in my immediate family, and my mother married into that. My grandparents 
we're a part of the Catholic church and had a bad experience and kind of were like, we're not doing church anymore. <laughs> and my mother married into it uh, under the church of Christ. So oh, that's my, that's my old stomping grounds. Oh, was it non-instrumental? Yes. The, okay. the real kind. Right. <laughs> yes. That's, that is where my parents started out was the non-instrumental yeah. uh, and women wear dresses and, you know, yeah. And so for me as a teenager, moving into an instrumental church and being able to wear jeans, this was like, wow, my parents are so progressive yeah. <laughs> because of the worldview I had begun in. Uh, but I do remember early on uh, in kindergarten, my mother worked for a Christian private school and they used a curriculum called Accelerated Christian Education, which has been in a lot of controversial news because I think in countries like Sweden, it's been banned based on their Gender Equality Act. Mm -hmm. um, and I can see why <laughs> looking back because they would have little cartoons in there about how women should submit to men and how the men should make decisions and how women should cover their bodies. You know, all of this was indoctrinated at such a young age through these little cartoons. I'm glad that it's been banned in certain countries, but it's still pretty prevalent here in the US. A lot of people still use it. Uh, so that's one way maybe we could try to mitigate such things in the future. But as for how I'm raising my kids now, we talk about issues. We talk about ideas. We talk about what's going on in the world. We don't really discuss religion, or I should say we don't put it in the framework of there is a God. Mm -hmm. Now, there was kind of a transition period where, you know, mom, mom no longer believes in God, but some of my children wanted to pray over their dinner. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't going to church, dad was bringing them to church, but I wasn't practicing at home. And they were confused by that. And they would ask me to pray over dinner. And I had to kind of make this division where, you know, if you choose to pray over your dinner, then you need to say the prayer but you cannot ask me to say the prayer over your dinner. And this is like a 10 year old, you know? So it was kind of a difficult thing for them to grasp. Like how come mom no longer believes in God? This was always such an integral part of our lives. And now she just doesn't want to talk to God anymore. And my, I think then 14 year old, you know, brought me a book from his youth pastor about how I should go back to God. So there was definitely some struggle in separating those two for several years, but where we are now, I think none of my children would prefer to go to church. They don't go to church unless they are legally required to visit their father and he brings them. And I just allow them to make their own decisions. Three of them are trans and I'm accepting of that. Their father is not. Um, but, you know, I want to allow them to experience life and be who they are without the influence of a deity or some type of rulemaking outside of our own experience that they cannot ask questions of. So did you, I just, a car was going by at the time and I, uh, did you say that three of your children were trans? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's certainly outside of the context of the book, but that's where, yes. where I am in life now. Yes. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I, was, I was thinking back and thinking, man, did I miss like 10 chapters in the middle? <laughs> no, 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 okay. no. I think there is one, uh, there is one point in the book where one of them comes out and is discovering that, you know, they are not straight. 
Okay. And that has since, you know, developed into other senses of general um, gender identity. But yeah, three of them so now. Are, what, are what, knowing what the Christian audience would hear, and I'll, I'll give it back to Matt after this. I'll just ask this question. Would, would you say that their coming out influenced your decision to walk away from religion and faith in God, or had you already walked away before that time? As far as my experience, I had already walked away at that point in time. I'm, I would say that I think maybe um, the one that did come out felt more comfortable doing so because I had walked away. Mm -hmm. um, but it was clear at that point that I had already walked away from the faith, church, religion, all of it. Okay. Matt, thank you, uh, by the way, for your for your answers. I appreciate that. Yeah, sure. Your book opens with you being in a quandary. Your wedding day is pretty much upon you and you're in a quandary there already. Now, was that just about the marriage or do you think that your deconstruction had potentially already started at that point? Ooh, that's a good question. I believe if I'm honest with myself, I think at that point in time, I was struggling with the marriage and also with the idea that marriage is the only way to have sex in my societal construct. Mm -hmm. And I knew that that was kind of a driver and I was wondering, is this really <laughs> a good way to make decisions? But I don't think it was quite to the point of deconstruction at that point in time, largely because as the book goes on, you see so much submissiveness that I still feel as though I have to be under and act in support of. So I think it took a while to really deconstruct once I was having those more, you know, the experiences where you have to be submissive and your thoughts don't matter, your opinions don't matter, which is like you were describing earlier, uh, Matthew, the, the misogyny and just like the removal of your humanity. I think I had to experience that before the real deconstruction began. I, I understand. And because you, you tell the story very raw, and as you have already heard, I had emotional responses to the way that you tell the story. And I think that's good and that's appropriate. I think it's really important for the readers of your book to have those emotional responses, because unless we have that emotional response, we can't really engage with the horrors that Christianity perpetrates on some of our citizens. So at what point then during the story that you're telling did you give yourself permission to actually ask the question is this christianity that i believe bullshit after all mm. uh i that's a really you're asking really good questions um i think there were stages i think that once i had children you know Women's emotional state, I guess, maybe changes a little after you have children, or maybe that's like a maternal instinct where I want to protect my children. And I was starting to see some red flags. And when I would ask questions, it was kind of knocked down, like, you don't know what you're talking about. It's not a big deal. This is just God's way. And that protective instinct started to kick in. Um, another stage would have been when I was exposed to actual education <laughs> and went mm. to college. And I debated with people about ideas like, 
abortion and drugs, which in the Christian world are just like, no, you don't do that. No questions yeah. asked. And when people made these logical arguments in favor of, it was like, you know, they're not, they're not wrong. These are good people. And I can't discredit what they're saying. And then uh, I do mention in the book, my, my kind of last straw is when I finally started a career and I don't understand what's going on. I feel like God's never answered my prayers. And I do kind of this litmus test that's like very <laughs> silly, maybe in some people's opinion, but I had just gotten to that point where, you know, screw the rules. I need to know, like, is there a God or not? And if you're powerful, you can say hello to me. And if you can't say hello to me, we're done. So it was the sticky note test. So I said, you know, God, if you're there, have someone leave an orange sticky note on my computer. And, uh, you know, that's like a multiple choice test. It's 25% chance that somebody's going to pick orange, right? People leave sticky notes on my computer all the time. And he couldn't do that or he couldn't, you know, have someone use a particular word within the course of three days. So I just decided, yeah, well, he's either not there or he doesn't care about me. So we're done. So I guess those were the stages that I went through for that. I did want to address what you mentioned about anger, though. So I did I did write the book very, very angry. <laughs> and to be honest, it was heavily edited to make it a little bit lighter, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> I do think you're right that those emotions need to come out. And maybe that's one thing that I wanted to get across was that if someone experiencing these things reads the book, I want them to know it's okay to be angry. Don't soften it. It's okay to be angry. These things are wrong and should not be happening. And it's okay to be angry about them. So can I go back to, um, a thing that you mentioned um, just a moment ago uh, toward the beginning of the book, and this was, you know, right in the first few pages, we could see that there were some cracks in the armor because you were having doubts about getting married. Uh, yeah. You were having doubts about whether this was the right person, but you mm -hmm. felt like it was a, kind of an obligation to go through with it. And there was an undercurrent that was that you spoke about quite candidly and you wanted to have sex. Right. <laughs> there wasn't there wasn't any other way to do that. And it, it strikes me that one of the ways the church controls mm -hmm. is through sex. And, and this is true with men and women, but I think it affects women more. It starts very, very early on where you do not have control of your body and your bodily choices. And it's mm -hmm. this great overlord organization telling you what you can do with your body and you can have sexual enjoyment when we tell you to which is when you can get married and you know depending on the church our counselor will tell you if you can get married or not and so then you're you're transferred to your husband and you know there's this kind of sense well okay your husband will tell you when you can have you know sexual fulfillment or not and so i'm just i'm just wondering being the secularist heathen that uh, that i am i used to be a preacher um do you think that it is better and this is a hard question i know so you might come back to it do you think it's better to advise christian young women of age to yeah, just have the sex rather mm -hmm. than to allow your sexuality to be dictated by an organization because we we see where both things can lead and both mm -hmm. things can lead to some bad ends 
But I am of the mind that it's better to have the sex than to give up bodily control. I wonder where you are in that. Yeah, when you pose the question like that, it's an easy answer. Just have the sex. Why should you give control of your body to anyone or any organization? Yes, bad things can come of it if you're doing things uh, promiscuously or that sounds like a Christian word. (laughs) 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 That's okay. We all uh, on this panel have been Christians. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, you know. You might want to take precautions like don't do a one night stand. You make sure you use protection, things like that. But in any endeavor in life, people are going to make decisions and they may be good and they may be bad. You can make bad sexual decisions. You can make bad financial decisions. And who's to say that either one is worse for you in the long run? Yeah. You in your, need to make in your, your own decisions. In your particular story, it just dawned on me you know, probably around chapter five or six or so, if you had just had an outlet, uh, a sexual outlet, there would not, this story wouldn't have happened. Can you expand on that? I'm not sure what you mean. <laughs> yeah, if you, because you, you needed to go through with a wedding that you felt was a bad match because because part oh. of it was that you needed to to find sexual expression. And I was just thinking, if you had, no. if if you felt that it was okay to just have the sex at some point before this yep. marriage, this story would have never gotten off the ground. That's absolutely true. That's very true. Yeah. As far as bodily autonomy, as the book goes on, you know, I think that I made it fairly clear that I, as a woman, was never exactly satisfied in this relationship. It was more about his satisfaction and when he wanted things. And there were times that I would like pretend that my back was hurt and just sleep on the floor just to avoid sex. Yeah, I think um, that's when when some of your more angrier passages came out in fact when you're talking <laughs> about that kind of stuff. <laughs> Go ahead, wow, Matt. you were more more sex undertones than I thought. <laughs> on the subject of, of the anger in the book and toning it down a bit, presumably then terms of you and in terms of your own personal mental health presumably there was a huge element of catharticism in writing the book yes oh absolutely there were many nights where i was typing and crying at the same time just i'm i'm an angry crier so when i get angry i cry um but yeah there was a lot of cathartic crying in anger when working through this book, um, but it was so helpful to me just to get it out and to say, hey, this happened. Don't let it happen to you. <laughs> um, so did you have a point writing it then when you actually thought to yourself, is it really worth me going through reliving this pain to get this down? Uh, there were times, yeah. I mean, I would say it took me a solid six years to finally finish it. I would set it down for a while and not not think about it, not look about it, try to focus on other things in life. And then something would, as my husband, my current good husband would put it, percolate to the top. And I would be like, oh, I got to get this out. And then I'd have kind of another, we'll call it session with, um, with really working through this stuff. I would also encourage people who have been through something like this, you know, writing it out was great, but I also have found really good therapists. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, that's been helpful as well. You know, a lot of people that have been through something like this have something similar to PTSD. And it's it's another difficult thing to work through. And I don't think you can do that by yourself. And for myself, even even a counseling environment is very stressful. And I'm going to use a, a modern word, triggering <laughs> for me, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because it was used against me so much, you know, it was like, oh, you need to go in and counsel with the pastor and the pastor and his wife and your husband are going to tell you what you're going to do. And there's no argument. Oh, and by the way, God is on the side of all three of those people and you are doing wrong. So just the counseling environment can be difficult for people who have struggled the way I have or, you know, in a similar way. Which leads me on to the pastor of the church that you that a significant chunk of the book talks about and the relationship with him and husband one the father of the children that relationship itself seems to be quite complex because there are points in the book where it wasn't clear to me whether the pastor was manipulating your husband for his end or whether your husband was going to the pastor to manipulate the situation towards his end it it wasn't always clear and presumably it wasn't necessarily always clear to you either right and I I think a lot of that stems from um, getting married too young really I mean I was young and impressionable and shouldn't have gotten married at age 18 just because I wanted to have sex he was also young and he didn't have you know the confidence to really stand up for himself but also now that I've observed him through the 20 something years that we were married and now observing him after, it really does seem as though, um, you know, his father had died, well, had had an aneurysm and was basically bedridden uh, when he was about 15 and then had died when we had our second child. So he has a need for that father figure type in his life and he's very susceptible to that. And he also has a desire for this being on stage and being in front of people. So he will kind of change his Christian beliefs slightly to accommodate whatever church will have him on stage and whatever pastor is of a father figure type to him. So you don't see those types of things when you're 18 or 25. You don't really understand those things yet. But uh, I see what you mean about the dynamics between the two. I certainly think, looking back, that the pastor was the dominant figure in this whole thing. I mean, he was an older man. He said multiple times that you know he had a PhD in psychology. And I think he used that knowledge to perpetuate his church and uh, try to grow it and honestly kind of use people. I don't think he had good intentions. There, There are some who really do have good intentions as a pastor. Um, This man, I do not believe that he did. There were a few things here. I know that this was not a a, a book about the theology of of church and uh, marriage and things like that. But at some point, I would imagine it came up. So I, I, I think maybe the most basic question I would ask, when you started walking away from the faith, did you were you walking away from did you did you believe that Christianity was wrong or did you believe that there was no God 
was was your was your walking away from a god and i guess i should ask did you actually walk away from god uh, faith in god because these things are these are very different things you know a lot of people walk away from an abusive church and even step away from religion and still hang on to a faith in god and so i'm i'm just trying to figure out where you are on that spectrum yeah um so I think that when I left the church in Texas, uh, which is the majority of what the book is about, I kind of had this feeling that, you know, maybe, maybe there's still a good God. And it was those people that were interpreting it incorrectly. And so I did try a couple of churches um, after I had moved. Uh, one was a messianic church and one was more of a mainstream church. But while I was going to those churches and still praying, I was still having this experience that like, it doesn't seem like God's there or answers prayers or does anything. Mm -hmm. uh, the Messianic church in particular, they were very open to debate. So I, I was able to ask a lot of questions there and people would give me their answers, but their answers didn't make sense to me. So I would say that um, in the end, I walked away from God. I do not believe that there is a God. I believe that every religion has its own vices and that perhaps religion is something that eventually should not be a part of the human experience. But I did walk away from God, yes. So just one quick follow-up then, I'll throw it back to Matt. Another strong theme uh, in the book from, from my theological walk perspective was God speaking to people, prophets, God, you know, someone giving a prophecy about you, something that relates to you or your life. He's talking to the preacher about your husband. There's this weight of, well, but God is telling these people things. Right. And uh, so one of the things that Matt and I uh, had talked about, or at least I talked about, and Matt indulged me, um, was if you are still believing any part of the Bible, the Bible is an example of God talking to people, telling them, speaking into your life. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's kind of the same thing. If you, would, if you would advise people not to listen to someone telling you what God says for you, that's no, that's no different than the Bible. And then the advice should be, well, you shouldn't listen to holy books either because it's the same thing. So today, I know that you still hear this, you know, some preacher says, God told me this or things like that. What is what would be your advice to people now based on your experience with that and maybe based on your further study with that about God? If there's a God, uh, should should you listen to that God through uh, the intermediation of another person? Because that's that's another place where things kind of went wrong for you. Yeah. I would say from where I am now, it's hard for me to accept what anyone would try to say and speak into my life without any bias whatsoever. We are human beings, and I think that we all kind of have our own agenda, so to speak. And um, this is sounding like I have these major trust issues, but I think it's a fact that, you know, humans want to pursue their own desires. And uh, oftentimes people will try to manipulate you to enable those desires. Um, 
as far as God speaking to you through the Bible, I think we have all, even those in the church, can recognize that you can take the scriptures and manipulate them any way that you want to. I've seen certain scriptures used in completely opposite ways in my life and and in other people's lives. It's just so subjective. So I think that both a religious text and the human mind are oftentimes very subjective. I also feel that people change so much over time. I saw an interesting story about, um, you know, an old couple and how this man was describing that his wife had changed so much over the years that he feels like he was married to eight different women. And I kind of think that's sweet, honestly. But um, people change over time and their impressions of you and what you should be doing will change. But even if you do believe in God, God is supposed to give free will, right? So why is he then telling you what to do? That's something else that's always been confusing to me. Oh, God gives you free will, but now God's going to come in and tell you what to do. Mm. Those are conflicting to me. And I'm very much on the free will side of things. I've learned that I have what I'll call an inner voice. And when I have followed that, my life has worked out so much better than when I follow what somebody tells me or what a book tells me, um, you know, we kind of have an intuition and we should follow that. So my question was clumsy, but your answer was brilliant. I appreciate that. And uh, Matt, back to you. Okay. Congratulations (laughs) on bringing the best out of our guests, David. Maybe I'll have you back. (laughs) (laughs) There is one thing that did impress me uh, about the book and Obviously, it's your book. You wrote it. But I don't think that takes away from the fact that out of sheer drive and motivation, that seems to be the overriding thread that eventually got you out. If you weren't motivated to do things, if you didn't have drive to constantly either to make life better or to make yourself better, this story would have never played out the way that it it does. Yeah. No, that's very true. Um, And it's hard for me to interpret, you know, where did that drive come from? Was it, has it always been there? Or was this drive created by the things that I went through and, you know, the anger, the maternal instinct, some of the world events that had happened? I don't really know. That drive has to come from somewhere. It's certainly not something you can get out of passively, I don't think. No, I I agree. And and it'll be interesting to see if you agree with what I'm about to say, because my impression as an onlooker and reading your book was there was a key moment where the ending became predictable. And that was when your dream job interview got sabotaged. For me, that moment and that entrapment in the church car park and that devastating realization that this had been orchestrated. For me, that was the point where you, the character in the book, said to yourself, whether you wrote it down or not, and I don't think you did, said, this is over. I need to get out. I need to start planning to get out. Is that true? Have I interpreted the events correctly? I think you're seeing things that I I didn't necessarily see that way, but now that you bring it up, I, I would say that moment, definitely it sparked the confusion 
And the confusion is what made me start asking those questions. So I would say, you know, now that I think about it, that probably was the impetus. I just, I didn't realize it then, but that definitely sparked the confusion that started those questions. Yeah, I think so. Good. My, my heart genuinely fell when I went through that because I thought this job sounds awesome. This sounds great. This sounds like a way, because reading up to that point before that, that, um, that confrontation in the car park happened, I yeah. genuinely thought that this could be a way to make the entire situation better. The marriage could improve, the relationship could improve, the church life could improve if people could just accommodate you, but, yeah. but they wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And the insistence on on pushing you down, and I think my I think I probably reached peak anger at that point as well. Yeah, and I think this goes back to uh, David's, I guess it was a statement earlier about should you allow people to control your direction? And that moment was, you know, both of those parties knew that I had this desire to do this kind of work and that this is kind of why I had come to this state, the state of Texas. Um, They both knew that. And I could tell that they had both as you said, orchestrated this moment in particular to prohibit me from doing what they knew I wanted to do. Um, and it was for their gain. It was because he was a good musician and his being a good musician would benefit the pastor's church. And neither of them even really looked at me. It was just like, this is what we're doing. This is what God said. Go home. Both. So yeah, I agree. But what confused me about that was their motivations, because they were being really, really narrow minded. And this was a regular theme throughout the book. This It wasn't just this instant. There were multiple instants that show the narrow mindedness. But that instant specifically, you could have had a job that paid better, that made you happier, which would have enabled your husband to put more time into the church. It could have benefited your husband and the pastor, you having that job, but they didn't see that. Well, so geographically, if I had gotten that job, we would have moved away from the church. Oh, right. Okay. Um, Did you put that? I must have forgotten that you put that. I may not have. I may not have put that geographic bit in there, but it was a couple of hours no, you away. Did. So. Oh, okay. You, you did. But I, I would just say that uh, even if it wasn't a geographical relocation, just based on, you know, the character of your husband at the time, that you described and identified uh, very well, if you were bringing in the money, he might not have felt the need to work at the church. I mean, he played music and that made him a rock star. He was good, but he was also doing office work at the church. I mean, the, the, the preacher had him on the hook for lots of things. And so he could have very easily said, well, I don't have to do all this uh, anymore. And that would have been bad for the preacher. So right. I think they would have still put the same pressure on you to uh, not take the job. Mm. That's very likely. That's that's good insight. Yeah. And looking at where um, my ex-husband is now, uh, a lot of these same things kind of ring true. So uh, towards the end of our marriage, and I don't think this made it into the book, uh, when I was going back to school, he did kind of, you know, relax his work ethic, so to speak. 
to the point that, you know, I was going to school, it was all covered by federal aid, but I still had to take out student loans in order to cover rent and groceries because he wasn't working enough and he didn't feel the motivation to work anymore because you know what? I was covering it. So I've seen that theme kind of repeated and, and probably this pastor, since he had a degree in psychology, saw that and, and took advantage of it. But yeah, I mean, if he wasn't motivated to do something because it was good for himself, he wasn't going to do it. So what, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about him because the, the book's obviously about you, but what did he do next? Did, is he in a relationship now? But obviously there was a period where he had to look after himself. How did he manage that without a wonderful person to do it for him? Um, he didn't. Uh, so after um, after we divorced, uh, he rented a couple of apartments and was still working for churches. He was evicted four times, I believe. He lived out of his car or campsites for a while. Um, I believe there was a period of time during COVID where evictions were um, illegal or at least suspended for a while. And that gave him the appearance of stability. So he was in the same place for about two years. And at that point he got married to a teacher and he lives in her house now. So, yeah, now he has someone else to um, take care of him, so to speak. <laughs> right. And those who have read the book don't need to use much imagination to work out what might be happening there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's she is definitely a submissive woman uh, and believes that that's how women should be in the Christian church. And he's still singing and leading worship and perfectly happy doing so. And I, I, I'm sure that she feels like supporting his ministry is her calling. Are they still at the same church or have they moved on from that? No, it's it's a different church now. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right. David, you had something to ask? I was going to uh, uh, ask if I could uh, insert one of uh, Andrew's questions. Go on then. All right. Um, so uh, what would you tell well i'm I'm gonna modify his question uh a little bit but also ask his question uh what would you tell little girls if you had the opportunity to speak to young girls who were impressionable going down the same road what advice would you give them that could could help them avoid this path and then the a similar question what would you tell fathers of uh young girls andrew doesn't mind me saying this he is a an atheist uh, father and his wife, but he has a um, uh, Christian extended family. And so there's always this kind of tug of war with their child and, and religion and so forth. What would you say to other fathers, though, as advice for raising strong, independent uh, little girls who don't fall uh, prey to being trapped? Hmm. Uh when you say little girls, that that makes me feel like the language would be kind of limited. And so that I would want to just tell them to trust their own heart, to trust what their inner voice is telling them, that you don't have to trust what any other people, I'll say including men, sorry, I was about to say especially men, but <laughs> including men, you don't have to be subjective or submissive 
to anyone else. This is your life. This was given to you. And you should be the one driving things and initiating things and saying what you want loudly. And people should be accepting of that. Um, and I guess fathers, it would be a similar thing. Um, don't tell your girls, you know, do as I say, or uh, because I said so. Things like that are, they're telling your children, you must submit to me. It doesn't matter what the reason is. It's just because I said so. That was one of the, the phrases that I just can't stand, you know, do it because I said so. I heard it as a small girl. I heard it, you know, in the church, in, although it was slightly changed because because that's just the way God is. And sometimes we don't always understand. That's the same thing as because I said so. And that's not an acceptable instruction, in my opinion. So um, I, I know that. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say no. I know that Andrew would uh, very much agree with with all of those answers. And when I was reading your story, the, you know, there was one little vignette that you mentioned that happened when you were five and mm -hmm. uh, and you didn't tell anybody uh, because right. you weren't you weren't sure what to, what to say and, you know, even how to describe it. And mm -hmm. the the kind of subliminal advice that I got from that was be the you know, for little girls is be the kind of person who tells. Don't don't yep. worry about not telling. Don't worry about being a tattletale. Don't worry about whatever social pressure comes from telling. Be the kind of person who tells too much mm -hmm. rather than the kind of person who keeps things secret. That would have made such a, a big difference in the lives of so many people that I know if they were just, if they had grown up being the kind of people who told and who made noise. Um, mm. And so I, 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 I'm not going to graphically talk about that section of the book, but that's kind of what made my mind wander toward this question and what, what you would tell, you know, someone in, in that situation. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I think that I would add to what to tell fathers um, based on that, because if you want your children, and especially girls, to to tell and to tell loudly, you also have to be willing to accept that, even if sometimes it sounds very strange or outlandish, or you're not really sure about it, you can't just shut it down. You know, even if it's one of those things that you know is a little over the top, accept it anyway, so that they have the confidence to tell again. Um, if, if you have kind of a, a line in the sand where if you tell beyond this, then I won't accept it. Well, you're limiting their ability to tell. So I think that's on everyone not just fathers, to to be willing to hear people when they have something to tell, whether it's about uh, something terrible that happened to them or what kind of job they want to have or thoughts that they're having that are different from whatever group you're in, society or the church or your book club. You know, be willing to accept those ideas that people have that are a little bit outside the box. Yes, thank, thank you. you for that. And um I'm going to repeat something that I've said on a previous episode with Andrew, where we've talked about my daughter. I have an 18 year old daughter and I've said on a previous episode that she's very good at answering back to me. She's very good at telling me when I'm being a less than intelligent father than she expects. And <laughs> those 
experiences for me as a father can be painful. They can be anger inducing. They can be frustrating. But I would rather have that than a daughter that is compliant and submissive. Absolutely. I would rather have that every single day. So please, fathers, encourage your children, especially your daughters, to answer back to you. You will have a better relationship for it. And your daughter will become a woman that is a better woman for it. I would also like to get very personal just for a small amount of time. Mm -hmm. I've just passed 29 years of marriage to to my wife. I know I don't look it, but um, that is how long I've been married. And we we got married in by British standards, a relatively liberal church. We didn't come from the kind of fundamentalist Christianity that you and David have described earlier in this episode. But even then, I still came into our marriage. We were in, both in our young 20s when we got married. We, I, even then, I came into the marriage without a appropriate attitude towards consent. I thought that the whole sex thing that we've talked about here was my rights because I hadn't been properly told what to expect from sex because we've done our best to avoid it. So this whole going back to the question that David asked before, it just didn't get done. And I'm so, so pleased that the woman that I've married did have a very strong personality and a very strong attitude of, if I don't fancy it, you're not getting it. (laughs) And she very much had the attitude. And for me, as a man who thought he deserved it, that was a problem. I genuinely, it took me many years to actually properly understand consent, because I had to learn it live in a live relationship. And it was problematic, and it was difficult. But men, learn consent please, because it makes it better. And I wish I'd understood that more. And I am also really, really glad that I don't have a submissive wife. I'm really glad I have a wife who not only knows what she wants, but has has the confidence and has always had the confidence to say no when she felt that way. And, you know, if it resulted in an argument, then it resulted in an argument. She was going to stand her ground to me. And our relationship has only lasted because of that because Sarah, my wife, does have that that attitude. And I'm so, so pleased. Men, you are losing out if you have a submissive partner because the relationship is not equal. I've I've got to pile on to this before you you run with it. Uh, So I was actually thinking to say something like this myself. I could give the exact same testimony as Matt. And I can, I, I just want to, reiterate that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a new a new man, a newborn creature <laughs> since the, the, the one of my first marriage. And I just want to say to all women, to all uh, little girls who are old enough to hear it, to all, uh, everybody, even men, uh, women, you never give away your consent. Uh, you don't give away your consent when you become a Christian, if that's your choice. You don't give away your consent when you get married. You always and you only have the right to say who touches you and when and how. That's just a fact. And if and if it's a sexless marriage because you just find that you uh, you know your husband is repulsive for whatever reason, then it's a sexless marriage. <laughs> there's you don't. There is no. There's zero. There should be zero pressure 
uh, on a woman to ever have anything but full control of her body. And if there's any church that ever tells you any different, you should run, not walk away. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I would, um, if you don't mind, like to ask some questions about the children. And obviously, this is about you and I want all privacy or appropriate privacy extended to the children. But the reason for the question is my parents separated and divorced when I was nine years old. So when you were building up towards marriage number one falling apart and the problems that were going on there, my thoughts immediately went to the children because I've experienced what it's like to be in a missionary environment abroad in Africa as a nine year old child watching my parents in this heavily Christian culture, their marriage fragment, their marriage separate, and all the pain that went through that. And I I always say that my teenage years are defined by the fallout from that, that marriage. It was hard for me. I carried that trauma for many, many years, right up into my 20s. So it was really hard for me because this whole expectation of a marriage is forever was drummed into me as a school child going to a Christian school where all the children were children of missionaries. So that was the kind of environment I was in, in growing up. How did your children handle that and are they okay now? Well, it was it was definitely rough for a couple of years. Um, when we broke the news to them, of course, there was a lot of crying. For the first year and a half, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, how familiar you are with how divorce works in the U.S., but because I had children, uh, we couldn't even file for divorce until we had been separated for at least a year, and we couldn't afford to rent a separate place, so we did what they call a nesting arrangement, so he would be home, I think it was Monday through Thursday, and I was home Thursday through Sunday, and we had to kind of switch off like that, and my youngest at the time was five or six, but also, as we learned later, autistic. So um, this this shift was really, I think, most difficult, most visibly difficult for that child. I think the others probably held it in a bit more, but this one expressed it more. So they were going through not only the divorce, but the fact that mom no longer believes in God. So at the same time as they're wrestling with mom and dad not being together anymore. Uh, that was the same period of time that my children were bringing me books from their youth pastor about how I should get right with God and asking to pray at the dinner table. You know, all of these things were happening at once. So it was a very difficult time. And I do remember not being sure if I should go through with the divorce because of the children. And that's something kind of a theme you hear a lot. Well, I guess in all of society, but maybe a little stronger within the church. But a friend so, of mine. I, I just got some information. I'm going to have to uh, log off here pretty quick. So incorporating your answer for, for me, a question similar to one I asked you earlier, which is, in your opinion, which situation is worse for children, a bad divorce or uh, living through a bad divorce or living through a bad marriage? Right. Well, that's exactly the the advice I had gotten from a friend. Uh, well, you know, he, he didn't realize he was giving me advice. He was coming to uh, town to 
go to his brother's wedding and he was very upset about it and he didn't think they should get married. And while he was explaining why, he said, you know, if you marry uh, the right person, that person will make you a better parent and a better employee and a better person. But if you marry the wrong person, they're going to make you a worse parent and a worse employee and a worse person. And that kind of put a light bulb in my head that, you know, this situation is not just worse for me. It's worse for the kids because they are learning from my ex-husband and myself that this is an appropriate marriage relationship. And if you're willing to stay in it, that's kind of the message that you're sending, that this is okay. So that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for me, that it's better for my children, even if there's a few rough years, it's better for them if I break apart from this relationship. Whether or not I get a new one doesn't matter at this point. I was perfectly happy to be single the rest of my life. But I knew I didn't want to teach my children that this relationship was what I wanted to hold up as an example to them. I really so, appreciate it, uh, Matt. I'm so sorry. I, uh, things, things came up. <laughs> Life came up. Uh, rather than plugging any of my stuff, which everyone knows by now, let me just plug recoveringfromreligion.org. If you mm -hmm. find that you are facing anything even remotely, uh, like what we've been talking about or like what was uh, talked about in Heather's book, religion might be at the heart of it. Uh, and if you're having some trouble breaking away, recoveringfromreligion.org, there you will find phone numbers and resources to help. Well, right, thank you, David. Talk to you again soon. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to address what was asked about how, how are my children doing now? And they're doing great. I'm very proud of how they think through things and, and we're able to have, I think, deeper discussions now because we're not limited to this framework of God or religion or really anything. I mean, we'll, we'll discuss things going on in the world and whether we think our country's laws are good or bad, what should be changed. You know, it's kind of this build your own world mentality. Like if you were in charge, what would you do? It's really exciting. I don't have any issues with rebellious children or depression or or anything like that everyone's doing rather well i'm really pleased and i'd like to affirm what you and david have just said for me when my parents separated and then it was obvious that they were going to divorce that was tough and because of the christian upbringing and the christian background yeah the idea of having divorced parents was anathena i thought that what they were doing was completely wrong and it was really, really difficult to cope with. And it took me many years to appreciate and understand that actually them separating, the divorce going through was the right thing for them. It needed to happen. Certainly from my mother's perspective, it needed to happen. And so I'm comfortable with that. But it took me quite a few years to get to that point where I said, OK, I'm, I'm comfortable with, with this. I, I'm OK with it. And embrace the the pain and the trauma that happened as a result as you know that happened that was life but it needed to happen yeah yeah i think we're about eight years out from the divorce now uh, so i'd say the first two from my perspective were rough my kids do go to counseling so 
maybe maybe they're struggling through things that I'm not aware of still, but from my perspective, um, they're doing really well. And I know that divorce is a difficult thing for children to go through, but I still stand by that it's better it's better to eliminate the um, upholding of a bad relationship than to continue just for the sake sake of staying married. Oh, absolutely. I absolutely wholeheartedly uh, agree with that. Yeah, jump. Yeah, if, if the marriage is bad and there is no way to resolve it, then get out. There, there is no other option. I see the attitude that I take. Yeah, you've, especially if the children are young, you're condemning the children, as you just said, to the next 20 years of witnessing a bad parental relationship. And what have they got to model it on? You, know, you can't say to them, Oh, just because ours is bad doesn't mean yours uh, won't be bad. You're giving them the the template of a bad relationship, and they're going to leave home and go into the world as young adults with the template of a bad relationship. You don't. No parent would really want to give that to their children. No, and, and like I said, I had planned on staying single. That is not what happened, and I kind of fought against it a little bit. You know, I, I didn't want to be in a relationship necessarily, but um. I just I met the right person and uh, we're in a wonderful relationship now. And I see from what my children communicate to me, often through memes, which is fine. <laughs> <laughs> they are seeing that the relationship I'm in now is so much different and better and that I'm being treated better and that they understand, you know, why things went the way they did and that they're happy for me. You know, we don't push that my new partner should be addressed as dad or that they should have that kind of a relationship but he is a good example as to what a good relationship should be and i'm very thankful for that yes and are there children from the other side or are the only children your children just just my children Uh, just your children i suspect that that possibly makes things a little bit easier it does it does i can't imagine how it would be trying to incorporate other children <laughs> that, that would be hard yes um, when my when my dad remarried i inherited two older step siblings and yeah oops. it's hard going through those traumatic teenage years and then suddenly you've got these additional older siblings to also deal with and who mm. are also going through their own version of the complexity of their own traumatic divorce but it's not your traumatic divorce and yeah it it, yeah. In some cases, it just doubles the strife. Yeah, they the kids do when they visit their dad. Um, there are step siblings on that side, and that seems to be a, a difficult thing for them to deal with. So it's not it's not in our home here, but my kids do have to work through the step sibling situation. Yes, and if presumably if they're on visitation as well to their father, then sometimes they'll be there and sometimes they'll not and uh, yeah it's it just brings in an an unwelcome dynamic but it's still better to be out than to be in a bad relationship yes so much better so much better about the new man because the new man he came out of nowhere to in the end of of your book i i didn't Mm -hmm. see it coming there were a couple of hints and i thought really Is, is is this what's going to happen and I, I, the book ended and I smiled and I was happy. Um, but it, it did take me a little bit by surprise. 
how how was that for you because it was still quite the whole thing was still quite fresh and quite quite raw for you mm-hmm. when this new character appeared and uh, vied for for your romantic attention that must be quite a strange experience uh it was a surprise and i felt like it came out of the blue as well uh so i'm glad that came through because <laughs> that's how it felt on my end i think that the way it came about and because I was not officially divorced yet, it, it kind of played upon those questions and, and thoughts going on in my mind about like, well, the church rules say this and society's rules say that. But I was at a point there that I had decided, you know what, I don't really have to listen to those rules anymore. I can listen to what I believe and what my life experience is. Because even though the marriage wasn't officially over at that point, my romantic interest in that relationship and any trust I had in that old relationship had been gone for years. And so there was this desire for someone that I could trust, someone that I could talk to. And why should I deny myself that? Because the rules say otherwise. It kind of allowed me to prioritize my needs over what other people say, even if it is yeah. somewhat in law <laughs> I was even questioning the whole idea of marriage at that point you know should we have marriage is this a religious construct and um, we were going to not get officially married um, my new husband and I but we were going to just have you know power of attorney and a common living space and without the legal impetus of marriage. Now that was kind of forced upon us by the legal system. And that's another story, but um, but yeah, I just, he, I, I wouldn't say he vied for my romantic attention. It, it kind of was this mutual tug of war that we were like, should we, shouldn't we? Because at the time he was also my professor. So there were a lot of rules that said, you shouldn't mm. do this. But my inner voice said, yes, you should. And I can say now, you know, seven years later, that that was the right decision. It didn't matter that uh, society said I shouldn't be seeing someone else if my marriage isn't fully over yet. Or it doesn't matter that they say, uh, well, you shouldn't be seeing your professor. None of those things really matter. If you really take the time to address your own needs. Some people might disagree with me on that, but (laughs) from my experience, this is, this is how it happened for me. And uh, we're in a wonderful relationship now. I don't have any regrets or complaints about it. I remember overhearing my mum say something one point. Oh, crumbs, I can't remember how old I was. It was. It must have been. Yeah, I, I can't properly remember how old I was, but it was years after that she divorced. And she said something on the lines of she wouldn't consider marrying again without her children's approval first Mm. and I remember my heart sank when I heard her say that because I mean the thing to know about my mother is she was she was a pleaser she she always was she was um she wasn't a submissive person but she was a pleaser and you know in a certain way I've inherited that same kind of attitude so her children were of critical importance to her all the time and so that that statement came out of her desire that her children shouldn't be disadvantaged by her 
that she would always place their needs above everything else. And, but hearing her say that probably was the first time I actually realised that crystal clear uh, about her. And the reason why my heart sank was I just wanted her because I was an adult. I'd left home. I just wanted her to be happy for her own sake. And it, it sounds to me that you're struggling with the exact you at that point were struggling with exactly the same thing that my mum was expressing then that balancing between wanting something for yourself but also being mindful of those who are dependent on you yeah no you're definitely right and and I would say I'm a pleaser too I I think that that inclination is much stronger when the children are young as I'm growing and my children are growing I think that there there should be kind of this movement out of uh, you know, my life is to take care of my children and more into my children can take care of themselves and I need, I need to take care of myself. And that's not an easy transition to make. Um, it's kind of a struggle. It, I don't know if it's because it's a habit or if it's because it's an identity that you formed for yourself. But yeah, I see that now that I have to consciously kind of delineate all right, I'm making this big decision. And right now I'm I'm only considering the children's needs, but you know, they're the youngest is 14 now. Um, I'm going to have a life separate from them fairly soon. Yeah. And I need to make sure that I I'm thinking about my long-term needs. And so uh, when I did start this relationship, I did not consult the children. This was a, a decision about me and my long-term happiness. And they were certainly a part of that. Um, but our, I guess, compromise in that was that we weren't going to force the role of a dad in the situation. It was mm. like, this is a decision that I am making to have this relationship. You can choose how you address this relationship. You don't have to call him dad. You don't have to be his friend, but he will be here as a mentor, if you feel comfortable with that. But this is a relationship that mom has decided to enter. So that's how we addressed the, the long-term relationship aspect. But I do appreciate the struggle of being a mom and always wanting to take care of your kids. I mean, it's natural. Mm. It's a good trait. But at some point, you have to transition out of that. And I think it's different for everyone. Yes. Yes. Uh I get that. As I said earlier, my daughter's 18. She's now at university. And so that's exactly the dynamic that we're working out at home here. She's now looking after her own money, looking after buying her own groceries. So she it's almost left home, but obviously she'll be back when uh, when the semester ends, when the term ends. But we're transitioning into that point where she's going to be responsible for her life and things I don't get to say in some things anymore and suddenly I can now make those decisions without having to think about childcare. and you're right it takes time to adjust to that different way of living it very much is a mental and an emotional adjustment as well going through that and I still don't feel ready for my baby to leave home let's just be <laughs> honest about it I that's that's yeah. the curse of being a loving parent <laughs> yeah it is that's true I'm not quite there yet. I have uh, 
two that are grown and two still at home. So I'm right in the middle, right in the middle <laughs> of all those transitions. You'd have got it right by the time it gets to the last one. Oh, maybe. <laughs> we'll see. Whereas, whereas people like me, we only get one go. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's hard either way. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it is. Going to try and put a Christian hat on now because there's a thought that's occurred to me that Christians hearing your story will probably go to. And mm-hmm. that is your new relationship. It happened relatively quickly in the chronology of things. You hadn't finished one, had a break, gone on to the next one. There was there was a merging, there was a blurring of the lines, shall we say. It was clearly an act of rebellion, what you were doing there. It, it wasn't anything more than that. Mm. Well, uh, my first argument would be that I wouldn't use marriage as a rubber stamp to uh, identify a relationship. I feel like marriage is kind of a legal piece of paper. Mm. And the relationship that I had with that person emotionally probably had died off around when the third child was born. So 10 years in, I would say that that was no longer a relationship. In terms of walking away from God and that type of rebellion, I can honestly say that I had made a personal commitment at the time that I My mantra was that I was just going to be single forever. I thought that was the best plan. And I tried, I really tried to live that way. But circumstances as they were, I would not say it was a deliberate act of rebellion. This was like the course of how my life unfolded. And it was my choice how to respond to that. I chose to be open to this relationship but I certainly wouldn't say that it was an act of rebellion. And I think that's evidenced by the fact that we're still married (laughs) (laughs) and it's going rather well. You know, the other interesting piece is that he also left a very controlling religion. And so him being a partner to me in life is, is helpful because he's been through this and he knows the intricacies and he knows the struggles that go along with that. So I don't believe in God, so I won't say God gave me this partner, but this was important for my life to continue on the way that's best for me. And so I took hold of that, and that was my decision. Excellent. And it does seem like it was the right decision as well. So I would defend you against the rebellion charge, obviously. (laughs) For me, reading the book, though, that because you don't make it clear in the book what your faith journey was you drop a couple of hints in the latter half that your faith journey had suffered uh, by what had happened but the book isn't so much about your faith journey it's about your marriage journey Mm. but I do get the impression that when when you when your book is drawing to a close you meet the new relationship that seems to signify to me as a reader quite clearly that that is also the end of your faith journey at that point. That that is now done. Whether you were aware of it up until that point or not isn't really important. It feels like two page two pages have turned in one go. There, the marriage is over. The relationship is a, is going in a new direction, and at the same time, with the same signal, the God relationship has also gone. Mm. 
Um, I, I would like to think that I had I had kind of flipped the switch with the litmus test that I had mentioned earlier, which was right around the same time when I kind of tested God, which all Christians yeah. will tell you I should not do, but quite needed to be done. <laughs> yes, quite. Well, a fleece, an experiment with a fleece, anybody? <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, I, I think you may be right in that he kind of helped me close the book on that. Like I had made the decisions, but everything was still kind of swirling around and I was very angry. And he helped me kind of close the book on on faith in general and just kind of mark a start to a life without faith and religion. So those might have gone hand in hand. You know, I had to do the testing or the fleece portion on my own. Yeah. And then uh, once I met him, it was kind of like like he was the salve on yes. the wound that just helped it close. Just helped you get over the line, so to speak. So let's talk about the faith journey for a little bit, because people who've been listening to Still Unbelievable have heard me say that I typically quote about three years as my exit journey from first doubt to final admission. Was there a time frame that you can nail down for your journey or is it less clear for you? So in terms of when I first started questioning to when I finally closed the book? Yes, yes. And roughly what was that like for you in parallel with what else was going on? I, I would say I'm generally very stubborn, so it was a long timeline for me. I could even go back as far as uh, what you helped me realize earlier, which was that the, the confusion and the questioning, I think, started with blocking me from that dream job. I had not identified that before, which was before I had had any children. So, yes, it was, wasn't it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then the questioning continued throughout having those four children, during which time, of course, the maternal instinct was also kicking in. And then going to college and exploring those ideas. Uh, So I think for me, it was probably a good 13 to 15 year journey. It was it was long because I'm unnecessarily stubborn. (laughs) But um, yeah, I think that probably when we left Texas, I was just about ready to to be done with faith, but I was I was trying to give it another go just in case mm. the problem was the people and not uh, God or Christianity. Um, because, but I think that became very evident quickly that it, it wasn't the people, it was it was the religion, it was the idea of God that was faulty from the beginning. So it doesn't matter what people were in play, I, I couldn't accept it anymore. One of the things that I hear an awful lot to from Christians who've heard my story is the, the very predictable, I was clearly in the wrong kind of Christianity. If I'd been in the right kind of Christianity, I'd been different. Do you have a response to that kind of thought? You know, I, I hear that a lot that I guess maybe it's a different play on it that if if you've left Christianity, it's because you did it wrong. Yeah. And I feel like Christianity has a way of putting everything on the believer, but at the same time saying, uh, you know, God takes your every burden and God will guide you. Mm. But at the same time, you're at fault. And they point the finger at you. 
you know, you didn't do it right. You were in the wrong portion of Christianity or whatever they're trying to say. Well, if God is so powerful, why didn't he direct me to the right way? Why didn't he influence me? Why didn't he tell me? If God is the one that's really in charge, then he should have done something about it. Yes, uh, I absolutely agree with you there. Christianity does have this nefarious attitude of when things are good, praise God. When things are bad, boo you. Right. And it's it, it seeps through. And it's not just the fundamentalist arms of Christianity that perpetuate that myth. It's also the more more liberal, the more progressive arms of Christianity still have a habit of giving those kinds of attitudes out. Mm-hmm. Yes, they do. And it's it's pervasive. You know, if it really was true that it was bad actors in Christianity, you would expect them to be the minority, not the majority. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Because if yeah, because if that was true, you know, why is all why is the majority of Christianity bad Christianity? Why is so much of it harming people? Mhm. Yeah, it's interesting. I I've been recently following a new facebook group that says uh there's no hate like christian love and they're just um they're really just reposting things that christians have posted kind of along the same lines that you know well if you don't believe then you are all these terrible and wrong things and if if you have left the religion then it's all your fault and you've done it wrong and you're going to hell and you know very um just talking down to people and not at all what they claim to be, uh, which would be loving unconditionally. I don't, I don't see that in the Christianity that I've experienced. Um, and outside of people's actions, because I can hear the, these voices saying, well, then you're just judging Christianity on people's actions. No, I, I feel like I have gone to the point of testing it to the one-on-one relationship with God um, aspect that, you know, I asked God to talk to me, to say hello. He did not. So I'm, I'm going to now discount anything in his book and anything associated with it, not because of the people, but because of my lived experience and um, the decisions that I have made and the actions that I have taken in order to inform that decision. Yeah, and that sounds very similar to the journey that I have taken and others have taken. You know, we didn't leave on a whim. We we tried hard. We tried to make it work. We tested as much as we possible and everywhere we turned, we met, were met with failure. So at some point you need to make the call and say there is nothing here to validate because every test fails. Mm-hmm. I do remember one point in time when um, I started questioning and doubting and I was like God you know I'm always praying I want to get out of this situation why don't you ever answer me and the thought that went through my head was well maybe it's because I'm a woman and when I (laughs) when that thought went through my head I was like okay hold up if this is how it's causing me to think and I feel deep down inside that that is a wrong statement something needs to be examined here so, you know, sometimes my own thoughts would trigger those those aha moments of like something is wrong here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd like to um, touch on some of the people that you you passed through 
uh, on your journey you know one of the characters that uh, springs to mind is the pastor's daughter she appears a few times but there, there must be others looking I'm assuming that there are no social ties with any of those people from your past life no they're not no it, it didn't seem like that that could survive but do you look back on them and sometimes wonder if some of these people might also be questioning to a similar degree that you were i do as a matter of fact i um i looked up the um the church that i had gone to down there and i mailed them a copy of my book wow uh, I, don't know if anyone has read it. And I know that, I think there were two different daughters mentioned in the book, and I'm not sure which one you're referring to, but one of them is now married to the head pastor. So, you know, she was the other pastor's daughter and he kind of was groomed into the position of pastor now. So she is now the pastor's wife. Uh, she and I did visit once after I moved, but before I had left the faith and you know, as far as the daughters go, I do believe that they are genuinely kind people who care about others. Uh, the original pastor, as I mentioned earlier, I do think had nefarious intentions. But the daughters, I think, are genuine and kind. Uh, and I do wonder if they question. So um, I made sure that I left some contact information with that book and no one has contacted me. So I don't know what's going on there. I know from things like social media that they seem to be a thriving church. But yeah, the, the relationships that I had then, I have not carried any of them over at all. But I do have genuine concern for those people and whether or not they have been able to find a way out. There were a couple of people while I was still in the church in Texas who did leave the church and of course were talked about horribly uh, inside our little church and then would come and and visit us personally and kind of try to pull pull us out of the church. Like, hey, there were some things going on there that maybe aren't the best for you. And we'd like to encourage you to try another church. Um, and I look back on that and I, I appreciate those people quite a bit. Uh, of course, they were trying to bring me to another church, but they were trying to pull me out of a, a really horrible cult-like mm. situation. And of course, as you know, at the time I had very little power. so. It's yeah. not as though I could have said, sure, let's go. And my then husband would never have allowed it. But I appreciated their concern and the risk that they took to come to our house when they knew that they were kind of in the doghouse in terms of anyone that we were associated with. Yes. And that's got to be a warning sign to anybody. If you're in a church and people who leave the church are constantly talked badly about by mm -hmm. the people still in the church, there has to be a warning sign there. There, yes. there has to be some kind of signal there for people to think, hang on a minute, really? Are we really extending the, the love of the God that we believe in when we do this? <laughs> no, you're right. Um, but I also remember that the counter argument to that in that church was that uh, if you walked through the doors of that church, that was because God had told you to. Right. So now now we're pointing to God and saying he's the one that did it right. And by doing so, God puts you under the leadership of this pastor. You are now his sheep. So now, if you ever choose to leave, you have to get the pastor or the shepherd's permission to leave. And if you do so outside of that, then you're going against God. So now the finger's pointing back at you again. Wow. 
you walked into the doors, praise God, you walk out of the doors, boo on you. <laughs> yeah, oh, that, I don't think I've ever been in a church where I've heard that kind of thing, but that's got to be a warning sign as well, though, surely, that's, that that's yeah. terrible, that is, because if God can take you over the threshold of one church, he can do exactly the same for any other church. Right, and I, I think my, my progression, I'll say, through various different types of Christianity kind of it kind of clouded things for me so you know I started with the non-instrumental Church of Christ and then it was like ooh, we have instruments and we can wear pants and it kept growing and then I was kind of rebellious and went to this church with my then boyfriend where you know they spoke in tongues and they had this really cool band and it kind of just it's like so is this another progression you know is this me growing in the faith because now I have this new thing in Christianity because my lens of Christianity was not consistent throughout my life it was constantly changing and so sometimes when these new ideas would come in it was just kind of a new idea that's how things had gone throughout my life was that Christianity grew and always had these new ideas and that maybe blinded me to a couple of the red flags that I should have seen sooner Mm. so but then I don't think you should be too hard on yourself for that because when you're in it you're not going to see these things are you you haven't been equipped with the right tools to see these red flags no that's very true and sometimes as I've mentioned I did have to kind of depend on my my inner gut so to speak I remember one time my father had come to the church with me and he had his concerns about this church and he was rooted in the church of Christ. And so he approached the pastor and he said, you know, I'd like to see your financial records because from my father's perspective, churches should be very transparent about their Mm -hmm. finances. Well, this pastor was very, very secretive about his finances and I didn't overhear the conversation, but I did see the pastor like getting in my father's face his face was red and he was like waving his finger in my dad's face. And, you know, I love my dad. So that made me angry. And I felt like that was wrong. And when I learned that it was about finances, that made me even more angry. Why should a church be secretive about their finances, especially being a person on the payroll and constantly being told, you know, we can't give you more. We can't help you with your electric bill, but seeing the pastor, you know, soup up his old, Ford, I don't know, I don't know much about old cars, but his old car. Yeah. Um, So those were kind of those moments when I knew I had an inner gut reaction that totally disagreed with what I was being taught. And what do I make of that? Am I really that wrong? Like, is my heart wrong? That was something that I never could really grasp when it was like, my heart says, don't attack my father and don't hide things that should be transparent. How can that be wrong? You know? Yes, I think that's a really good message to to take away. You know, pay attention to our inner voice. If we're in a situation and there are elements that are making us feel uncomfortable, maybe that's our unconscious brain, subconscious brain trying to tell us something. You know, pay right. attention to that. Yeah. If we're in a situation that's leaving us confused or slightly uncomfortable, investigate that chase it down then you may be in the scenario that is unhealthy for you long term and this might be the early warning signs of that so 
take a look around, see what's in. Is it creating some unhappiness in you? Because that might be the clue that you need to escape from a certain part of your life. Right. And and when I would bring that up to the church leadership, their response was something along the lines of, you know, God works in mysterious ways. And sometimes we don't understand the way God works. But, you know, here's the scripture. Here's what he says. And I'm sorry you feel confused about it, but that's just life. And that was the message that I just could not accept any longer. You know, my my inner feelings and emotions, um, my sense of justice, I think I had kind of a sense of justice, would just, I couldn't accept that answer anymore. Um, it wasn't an answer to me. It was a cop-out. Yeah. I hesitate before asking this question. I'm leading up towards the end now. But there is a burning question that's, feeling in me because I can imagine that this is not a unique scenario but it's a highly unpredictable scenario right in the opening pages of your book you talk about your impending wedding you talk about your doubts you talk about talking to a trusted friend and asking the question very bluntly is this a man that I need to marry yeah and the friend that you asked that question to, I'm assuming, was ill-equipped to address that question in that moment. What advice, what thoughts would you give to somebody in that situation being asked that question in a moment like that? My advice would be if you have any hesitation or any doubt at that moment, I would take a step back. I, I mean, I would leave the situation and not get married that day. Um, because of the way that society has constructed marriage, it's so very easy to get into and so very difficult to get out of. Uh, and there are so many odd things that are tied to the idea of marriage that if you have any hesitation at all, walk away. You can revisit it later. People might be angry. People who you know, decorated the facility or flew in or whatever they did, they might be angry, but that'll last, uh, you know, a day or two, or if they're really into holding a grudge, maybe a few months. But marriage for you is going to last a very long time. So any hesitation or doubt whatsoever, I would not do it. That was simple and emphatic. Thank you, Heather. Any final thoughts that I've neglected to ask you that you would like my listeners to know about your book, apart from where to find it and where to buy it. Uh, well, I would definitely second um, Recovering from Religion. It's an excellent resource. There is another resource I would mention called journeyfree.org with um, Dr. Marlene, I believe it's Windell, and she is kind of spearheading this effort to get a mental health diagnosis officially recognized that is uh, religious trauma syndrome. Um, and whether or not you see any similarities in our stories, if you've been through something that is tied to religion and you feel as though you're trying to climb out of it in any way, I do recommend writing it out, but also finding someone that you can talk to, hopefully a good professional and I think recovering from religion and journey free both have excellent recommendations for people who are familiar with this type of stress. Most counselors are not ready to approach trauma from a religious standpoint, 
but those that you can find at Recovering from Religion and Journey Free are, and I would highly recommend that. Thank you for that. Links to all of those resources will be in the show notes, as well as Janice Selby's resources as well. She is on Twitter as a wise counsellor, I believe. Follow her. All of that will be in the show notes. Once more, thank you, Heather. I loved reading your book. I recommend that people who, whether they're in a similar situation or not, also read your book. Link to that will be in the show notes. You've been a lovely guest. Thank you very much. And listeners, until next time, be reasonable. been listening to a podcast from Reason Press. Do you have any thoughts on what you've just heard? Do you have a topic that you would like us to cover? Please send all feedback to reasonpress at gmail.com. You might even appear on an episode. Our theme music was written for us by Holly. To hear more of her music, see the links in our show notes.